Hello everyone, this is Melody Montano. Today we're going to be covering Chapter 5, um, The Patient Out of Your Surgical Technology Principle and Practices textbook. The learning objectives of this course are to define patient-centered and outcome-oriented care, list and discuss human needs as described in Maslow's hierarchy, describe human basic physiological needs, and discuss common psycho, uh, psychological needs of the surgical patient and their family. So as part of the surgical team, we have to remember that every patient is unique um, and they all are feeling a type of fear, um, possibly wondering what's going to happen during their procedure and after their procedure. So we have to remember that a positive surgical outcome depends on patient-centered care. So we can make the patient feel better, go into surgery, being much calmer, if we also exhibit calm behavior when they come to us in the surgical suite. So with that being said, the surgical team bases its assessments, planning, and interventions on the patients as an individual. So just remember, every patient reacts differently to various environments, and we have to take that into account when we're dealing with each patient. So when we look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, um, we have self-actualization, self-esteem, love, security and safety, and physiological needs. So the basic fundamental needs as described by Maslow, these are your most basic needs that must be met before fulfilling other needs. Um, and they're symbolized by the triangular hierarchy that he put in place. So, of course, physiological is your most basic need, security and safety, love, self-esteem, and self-actualization. Um, and that's also a model for patient care. We always also have to remember that this is what we're going to look at when we're looking at caring for our surgical patients. We're going to look at how all of these needs are being met, not only in the operating room environment, in the hospital environment, but you know, as much as we can gather from their family also. So when we're looking at physiological domains, um, your physiological domains include respiration, nutrition, transport, excretion, reproduction, growth, repair, and movement. So as you can tell, these physiological domains are your most basic. Um, they operate parallel to social, emotional, and psychological needs, and they're just referred to as your life functions. They're necessary to, sus to sustain life. And in a patient care environment, um, enabling life functions takes priority over all other needs. So all of these needs we have to ensure are taken care of for the patient to be able to be in an environment and heal properly and, you know, move forward with how they're feeling. Um, so when we look at psychological needs, your psychological needs are safety and security. Um, a lot of times there's a perceived perception when people go in for surgery of how things are going to turn out. Um, maybe they have a cancer. Maybe something's going on where they're worried about, you know, when they have this procedure, are they going to still be able to live the quality of life they lived before? So there is high levels of anxiety and we need to ensure that we address those needs. 
um, anesthesia, when we're looking at anesthesia, sometimes people have like an, a fear that they may not awaken from anesthesia. If they've ever had a bad reaction, they've had trouble breathing after they've been brought out of anesthesia, or if they've ever had any kind of um, reaction at all to any type of anesthesia, they're going to, that's going to cause them additional anxiety. Death, of course, is a fear of dying. Um, many patients fear that during or after surgery, you know, they're going to die. So this fear is often greater in a patient who is about to receive general anesthetic. And um, just the whole concept of being held unconscious and in another's control increases those feelings of, of impending death. So we have to make sure we keep them at a relaxed level. The fear of pain is normal. I mean, nobody wants to be in pain. That's, that's a given. So what we have to do is we have to make sure that we make the patients as um, comfortable as possible when during surgery and after surgery. A lot of patients are very scared of disfigurement. Um, let's say if they're having some type of a reconstructive surgery or like a, a breast biopsy, um, you know, or even a mastectomy. They may be worried about how their body's going to look, how it's going to be perceived by other people. And we have to really remember that, especially when we're looking at adolescents, they're very concerned about body image um, and just physical changes that could be brought on by surgery. Loss of control. So a lot of patients, when they enter um, a healthcare system, they also lose a lot of their um, rights as far as they're figuring they're going to lose the right of being able to take care of themselves, make their own decision, depending on the type of procedure. So they um, may anticipate that they're going to be mobilized. So they're going to have to be dependent on others. And that, in some situations, creates a very stressful environment. Um, and then physical exposure. So, you know, nobody wants to be physically exposed in an operating room. Um, we have to just make sure that they have an understanding that they will be covered. We will have, you know, if there's windows, the, the blinds will be drawn just to give them that comfort of knowing that people are not just going to be able to go by and look at them while they're in the operating room. And then of course, loss of privacy. Um, many patients are just afraid that depending on the procedure they're having, what they're having done, that this information may get out. Um, there's some things that people don't want other people to know. So we have to ensure that we keep everything that we know irrelevant of who the patient is. It's not to be discussed and we're not to um, make a judgment on anybody at all. So with social domains, um, we have to remember that love, belonging, and acceptance is a huge, that's a large, huge need that people have. People want to be loved. Um, they want to feel like they belong to something, they are a part of something, and that people accept them. So they determine um, our sense of well-being through others' acceptance of us and how our nurturing. I mean, if you had a childhood where, you know, you were loved and you were treated with respect and treated with love, then that person might deal differently with a situation than someone who, let's say, who was not raised in that environment, who was possibly abused. Um, those are things that, you know, patients, when they go into surgery, that can truly affect how they handle the surgery and their outcome. 
And another thing is just self-esteem and self-image. Um, if you have like a lower self-esteem, a lower self-image, then you may already be at a, at a, you know, a whole perception of yourself that you're worried if you go into surgery and you have scars or you've had some kind of disfigurement, you're worried that that's going to accept, um, just make a difference out of how people accept you. Those are another um, another thing that we have to take account when people come in. And of course, self-actualization. So just remembering that um, that figures prominently in both humanistic theories and then um, self-actualization is just an individual's ability to plan and achieve his or her life goals on the basis of the physical, social, and psychological freedom to you know, go ahead and pursue those achievements. So everybody has a different time when they come into self-actualization where they realize that, you know, the route they're taking is one that's good for them in the long run. So we have to remember that everybody's unique and usually high valued by each individual. So all of these domains are something that we have to ensure the patient is comfortable with and we're making them feel accepted and like they belong to a part of something and we're going to take good care of them while they're in surgery. A lot of times people have, um, patients have a very hard time depending on their personal experiences through illness and surgery, how they react to things, how they're going to feel. Um, patients have different pain levels. Some patients deal with patient well, uh, deal with pain well, some don't deal with it well at all. So we have to remember that um, every patient is unique. Um, and as surgical technologists, we can anticipate that's that the patient's immediate needs through verbal and nonverbal cues. So if they are, you know, if they're coming in and they're ready, you can tell as you say, hi, you know, I'm Melody, I'm going to be your surgical technologist, and their reaction is, you know, one of fear then you know we have to remember their coping mechanism of dealing with surgery might be a little lower than someone who possibly has gone through it before or you know doesn't have these impending fears of death or you know just unacceptance overall and then um when we're looking at as surgical technologists coping with illness and surgery we have to remember as professionals that we have to explore other cultures and beliefs. We have to understand that some cultures deal with things differently. Some cultures deal with stress differently. Um, you know, some cultures have a totally different um, belief system if somebody has a disability. That in itself could create a lot of fear in a patient who comes from a culture where disability is seen as, as a huge disadvantage. So we have to make sure that we have a good understanding of, of what the patient is expecting. Um, we have to know that, you know, and as far as our own perceptions, what do we feel about certain situations? Those are things that we have to remember that, you know, we have to take into account our own behavior and some of our fear may come across to the patient, depending on the procedure, depending on what we're dealing with our, in our own life. So we have to ensure that we're staying at a calm level, and as professionals, we're keeping our opinions to ourselves and just respecting that patient's cultures and beliefs. 
Okay, our next learning objectives, um, we're going to demonstrate appropriate communication with the surgical patient. Um, in this situation, we're going to discuss it more than demonstrate since this is an online course. Um, we're going to define spirituality as applies to patient care, and then identify spe special patient populations and their needs. So the first type of communication that we're going to discuss is therapeutic communication. Um, when we're looking at therapeutic communication, we have to remember that as perioperative personnel, we can alleviate some of the patient's fears and concerns by using therapeutic communication. So even if it's a brief encounter, we have to remember that when we use therapeutic communication skills, we can contribute to a positive positive surgical outcome. Um, listen to the patient attentively, show an interest, don't don't just, you know, yes, uh -huh. you have to show that you are interested in what they're saying. Um, explain what you're doing in plain, simple language. So look for cues from the patient if they don't understand it, you know, go into more detail of what you're explaining. And just remember, don't talk about yourself. It isn't about you. It's about the patient. There, there should be no joking, no offensive language, um, none of that, because they're trying. We're trying to keep them at a calm level. So part of that therapeutic communication is bringing their anxiety level down. So just remember that the characteristics of therapeutic communication they're goal directed. Of course, they're unique to each patient because everybody reacts different. Um, they require active engagement, so your active engagement with the patient. And it requires excellent observation and listening skills. This is about the patient. It's not about you. So remember, be observant and listen to what they're telling you and, and listen and go off of those cues. Um, there are various techniques that you could um, use in therapeutic communication. So when you're um, actively listening, you're making eye contact, you're letting the patient know that you are listening attentively, you are paying attention. Don't let yourself be distracted, don't be off doing other things. Focus on the patient when they are speaking to you, look directly at them and listen to them when they're talking to you. Um, provide information, so you know, if, if a patient asks you something as far as like, what's on your back table or, you know, what what is what are those instruments? It's like you can provide information to let them know that you know what you're doing. You are a professional in your field. Of course, you don't want to go into too much information, but you can alleviate so they have a clear understanding of you know what you're doing and what's going on. And depending on where you're at in that environment, I mean, the patient may or may not remember exactly what you're talking about. So <laughs> just remember that. Um, when we're talking about focusing, um, just remember as a healthcare provider, we need to stay on point. We need to focus on crucial communication that can affect the outcome of the patient. Um, another thing is paraphrasing and restatements. So sometimes a patient may need to hear you restate something again. They may need you to clarify and paraphrase something for them. That's okay, just go ahead and do that. Um, we need to clarify and make sure that they clearly understand what the patient's saying and implying and also what we're saying back to them. So reflection, um, patients may comment on their surroundings to communicate uneasiness or fear. So sometimes an abrupt um, comment requires a caregiver 
to reflect on what the problem might be. So we just have to remember that, uh, let's say for instance, if the patient says, you know, it's cold, it's so cold in all these places. I mean, don't these hospitals make any money for heat? You know, just let them know that the temperature is low for safety reasons and that they will be covered with the warm blanket so they will not be cold during surgery. Our response is going to make all the difference in how they feel in the operating room. When we're looking at spiritual needs of the patient, just remember, spiritual doesn't always mean religion. Um, you have to have an understanding of something more profound than humanity. A lot of times, someone can be very spiritual, but that doesn't mean that they're religious. They just want to know that, you know, um, whoever they look up to as, you know, their deity, whether that be God, Jesus, Allah, whoever, that they know that they will be taken care of and you know, they, they may be very spiritual and praying, and that's okay. That's totally up to how they feel. Um, some patients like to bring religious items into the healthcare setting. Those are items that you allow the patients to have with them. And, of course, when they go into surgery, then um, we have to remind them that jewelry cannot be worn during surgery. So they may have to leave their rosary beads or whatever with their family members when they go in. And then um, spiritual needs are not perceived by the physical senses. So we may not even know that, you know, this patient is praying or, or has these spiritual needs that they're dealing with. But we have to remember that if there is something that they need um, and there is something that they need time with their family to deal with, we need to give them that time. Okay. And then just awareness of belief in a higher power or entity. Just knowing that it's, once again, it's not our place to judge who they worship, how they worship, and what they worship. We just have to make sure that we're available for them to know that we're actively listening, we're going to take care of them, and um, we've got this taken care of for them. Okay, so there are also special patient populations in surgery. Um, these can present challenges, um, whether it be in communication, um, the physiological response to surgery. So when we're looking at the pediatric patient, um, pediatric patients, uh, they have very different developmental stages and how they deal with things. So, of course, um, their developmental stages, you have the infants, so those are birth to 18 months. Toddlers are 19 months to three years. Um, preschoolers are four to six years. School aged is seven to 12 years. And adolescents are 13 to 16 years. So the one thing that um, we have to take into account when we are bringing these children back is at various stages, developmental stages, there are different fears that they have when they're going to surgery. So of course, infants, um, infants of course fear separation from their caregiver, their mother, their father. A lot of times they allow um, them to come back with them into the OR so they can, you know, so they can sort of see around the room and they can see that their mom and dad is with them um, and they have on their head covers, their shoe covers, their masks, so they see that there is nothing to fear. Their mom and dad are still there. Um, toddlers tend to express aggression and regression, so they could be, they could go from 
different levels of being crying and upset and yelling and screaming to being totally quiet um and then just getting frustrated and and you know having extreme anxiety we have to remember they're small so they're going to they're going to be probably one of the more difficult ones to comfort because they are at an age where they have an understanding but they're still at an age where they still don't have a complete understanding so those are sometimes hard um preschoolers a lot of times with preschoolers um their extreme fear in the operating room environment a lot of times they have a fear of punishment or abandonment so they're actually thinking Am I being punished for doing something wrong? Are they going to leave me here and not pick me up? They just have that natural fear of, you know, understanding of what's going on. So they're concrete thinkers and they understand words such as cuts, bleed, and stick. And sometimes when they think of that, it they take it to a whole other level of exaggeration because they're stressed out and they're worried. So we have to take that into account when they're looking at them also. Um, School-age children are usually compliant and cooperative with healthcare personnel. Um, they want to see if they can help, what they can do. You know, they're they're trying to feel like they're big boys and girls. You know, a lot of times they're very sensitive about body exposure, and that can be very stressful for them. And they do welcome explanations and any kind of descriptions on how things or how devices and equipment in the environment relate to their own bodies. This shows, it shows them that, you know, this is how we're going to use certain items as we're preparing you or getting your mask on for surgery, whatever, getting ready to intubate them. They like to have that information. When we're looking at adolescents, um, adolescents tend to be very sensitive about body image and changes in the body. They may be going through puberty. Um, there may be a lot of changes that are going through. There, a lot of times they're fearful of losing control. Um, you know, and, and because they're at an age where everything embarrasses them. You know, everything is the, the terrifying. So we have to remember that. You know, the way we handle them is we have to be careful and we have to have an understanding of them. Many times teenage boys will come out of surgery and they will be in a fighting mood. So they will be ready to swing <laughs> at whoever's in their way. So you just have to understand that, you know, that's part of their fear. That's part of how they're dealing with things. And um, we just have to be there to ensure they're safe and that they we are bringing their anxiety level down and they're not harming themselves. Um, another special needs population patient is the older patient. A lot of times um, older patients are worried about when they go into surgery, it's like, are they going to be able to function on their own? Um, what's their mobility going to be like? How are they going to be perceived? Um, we have to look at their nutritional status. So unless the surgery is an emergency procedure, the patient will remain in care for some time, and an important consideration is whether the patient has help at home following the hospital stay. So will they be able to carry out all of their routine daily activities? Are they going to be able to do that without assistance, or are they going to need home health care or a family member to do that? Um, mobility, a lot of patients are carefully assessed for their level of mo mobility. Um, they're going to look at before and after surgery, 
like what are they having done? If they're having a total hip, a total knee, they may have problems with mobility and they may need more help. Then, of course, they're going to look at nutritional status. Um, older patients have also have often lost an acute sense of taste and smell, and that's reflected in their body weight. A lot of times they are thinner, um, that, you know, for various reasons. They have a loss of essential nutrients that leads to many different illnesses, and that can further debilitate a person. So we have to make sure we take that into account. And then cognitive impairment. Um, that's also often related to poor nutrition, so just a lack of essential um, minerals. They may have language barriers, anxiety, or just a true organic brain disease that we have to be aware of. Um, the older patient may face many physical challenges in surgery, and those could be related to ex coexisting diseases, um, nutritional status, any type of metabolic um, balances, or just risks associated with certain types of surgery. Like, like I was saying, total knees, hips, cardiovascular procedures. So we just have to take that into account when we're looking at the older patient. Okay, um, the older patient, of course, we have, these are all areas we covered, risks related to coexisting diseases. Um, any type of skin problems, changes in kidney function. Um, they may have cardiovascular function that, for whatever reason, is not functioning at optimal level. Um, maybe joint problems and muscular problems. So those are, those are all things, especially when you're looking at a patient that you're bringing into surgery, that you know you're going to be positioning in various uh, positions for surgery. You have to take that into account. We are also going to be dealing with patients with sensory deficits. Um, the sensory deficit is an alternation in one or more of the body's senses. So we're talking about hearing, sight, touch, and smell. That may result in the patient's inability to interpret the environment. So with the hearing impaired patient, um, depending on their type of hearing loss, if they have a hearing aid, they may need to be communicated with in a different way. Um, we have to remember that caring with a patient with hearing deficit requires specific techniques. So a lot of times they may have an interpreter, they may have someone that um, is going to help them understand. If it's just a slight hearing loss, we can have to remember that we just have to speak at a normal um, tone. You don't wanna yell at them because they're not, you know, they're going to be able to, to feel more comfortable if you're making them feel comfortable and just normal. Um, and then, of course, when we're talking about sensory deficits, the senso, um, sensory neural and the conductive, they may be sight impaired. Um, they may have slight problems seeing things. If they're coming in for cataract surgery, um, they're going to come in with these visual deficits that are going to create, they're not going to be able to see the environment around them. So that might create them um, or cause them to have a higher anxiety level. And then of course the malnourished patient, um, they usually lack the, necess um, the necessary nutritional reserve to heal, depending on what the patient is eating, if they have proper vitamins, um, 
They may have problems with anesthesia. Um, the body's normal metabolic processes don't function correctly when they don't have um, the essential elements. And then just poor elimination of waste products. So there might be an electrolyte balance that's a problem that allows them to metabolize the um, anesthetic agents. And that has a whole direct effect on the electrical activity of the heart. So those patients need to be monitored closely to ensure that they're safe. Um, when we're looking at bariatric patients, a lot of times patients are coming in. It's very common now for patients to come in for um, a gastric bypass surgery, lap banding, uh, various procedures that are going to help them lose weight. But during the initial surgery, we're going to have various situations we're going to have to deal with. Um, so airway obstruction, of course, that's high risk for obese and morbidly obese patients. Um, just the extra tissue around the neck and around the trachea can make the intubation difficult. Um, then we look at the hemodynamic function or any of the movement of the blood through the body and blood pressure. Many times um, these patients already are on blood pressure medication. They're diabetic. Um, they, you know, maybe they have heart, ongoing heart problems. Since the heart must work harder um, to get the blood pumped through the body, those are changes that we have to be aware of also. And then um, we're gonna look at venous status. So what we're looking at is, is it that's an additional problem that happens um, where the vascular system results in edema of the lower extremities. So they may have swelling, um, you know, and let's say if they have it in their lower legs, you know, cause they, they don't, they're not very active. So um, with the stasis, it, what it does is it's building up that fluid in that area. So a lot of times that can revolve, um, result in v, deep vein thrombosis. So that can be very dangerous. So a lot of times they're going to put, um, you know, TED hose on them to continually massage the legs and keep that blood circulating. And um, once again, they may have respiratory problems. So they may have problems breathing. Um, the extra effort needed to move air through the lungs is related to an increased tissue in the thorax. And then just shortness of breath, that's due from overexertion of the heart muscle. So those are all things that with bariatric patients, we have to keep a close eye on. Okay, um, the next group we're going to look at is diabetic patients. Um, diabetic patients have a vascular and neurological risk. Um, the wound healing is prolonged. Diabetic patients tend to take a longer time healing. They have to be very careful of um, any types of cuts, but in surgery, of course, with an incision and how it's taken care of because they can get an infection quickly. Um, the immunosuppressed patient, once again, these patients are at a greater risk for um, nosocomial infection. Many times they're HIV or AIDS patients, and they have multiple barriers to post-op recovery. Um, these patients, we have to ensure that we are, of course, as with any patient, um, our aseptic technique is, is perfect, but, you know, these are patients that are going to have a hard time here um, healing. And then trauma patients. Um, when we're looking at trauma patients, of course, they have high risks for many reasons, one of them being it's that they've been in a trauma, but depending on where the trauma is located, um, if, whether it's been a gunshot wound, stabbing, um, car wreck, we have to ensure that um, 
you know, when we're doing this surgery, not only are we making sure that we're keeping the area um, sterile, we're making sure counts are correct and offering as much help as we can. Many times these patients will come in impaired, whether that be alcohol, drugs, um, they may be in a stressful situation if they've been with someone who has, you know, if, if they were in a car accident and the person that was with them in the car um, passed away, that, that could create a, a huge issue for the trauma patient. So we have to provide um, psychological support for the patient and the family. And many times we have to be delicate about what we're discussing and what the outcomes are. Next, we're going to look at patients with developmental disabilities. Um, developmental disabilities refer to a large group of diseases or conditions that affect movement, posture, cognitive ability, behavior, and other mental processes. So uh, we could be discussing patients with cerebral palsy, um, cognitive disability, any type of learning disabilities, and then any um, type of autistic spectrum disorders. A lot of times, uh, the way that these patients deal with other people in general can create a harder environment. Many times they don't, they don't like to um, look you directly in the eye. They don't want you communicating directly with them. So those are all things that we have to remember that um, the patient having a disability is not the disease. That's a disability they have. So when we're looking at caring for patients with developmental delay and in communicating with them as part of the surgical team, we have to use terms that respect the individual and that apply to that patient. So, you know, name the person first, not the disability. Um, and just remember that a person with a disability is not a disabled person. Many people with disabilities function, have lives, have jobs, um, and just, you know, use neutral expressions and use preferred languages. So always be able to um, understand that you have to be able to speak to them in terms that they're going to understand. Now, when we're looking at patients who come to us with um, psychological trauma. So severe psychological trauma can result in several syndromes and physical symptoms to the perioperative that this perioperative staff may encounter. So you have to remember, we may be dealing with um, the patient with the history of psychological trauma or post-traumatic stress disorder. If this was someone who served in the military, um, possibly someone who was raped, abused, a lot of things lead to post-traumatic stress disorder. So we have to remember that loud noises, um, you know, walking up to somebody without letting them know you're coming. These are all things we have to be careful of when we're dealing with um, patients with psychological traumas. The patient with substance abuse. So a lot of times patients come in and they've had, um, you know, they, they've had substance abuse, possibly whatever drug, their drug of choice, but that may have affected them in a way that is non-reversible. So we have to look at how we deal with those patients and we, you know, we treat them, of course, the same as any other patient. We just make sure that um, they might be impaired by a legal or illegal substance and whether that be drug, alcohol, or some other substance, um, we have to remember that when they're in that operating room, 
a lot of times they may not have an understanding of where they're at. They may not have an understanding of what's going on. So we have to make sure we handle that in a very careful manner, not only for their safety, but for our own. Um, the isolation patient. The isolation patient is someone who is resistant to an organism, uh, someone with MRSA, uh, something like that. So we have to remember that prior to surgery, um, healthcare workers should take the normal precautions of uh, gloving, gowning, and working within the sterile field. Many times um, when patients come in, they will let us know if there's a situation where this is an isolation patient. We should always treat every patient the same way we should always ensure we use, um, you know, universal precautions on every patient, but many times they will let us know if this patient is an isolation patient. And then, of course, a pregnant patient. Um, they, may they may be scheduled for certain kinds of urgent surgery that are not related to the pregnancy. Um, many times they have minimally invasive surgery. So that allows procedure on the gallbladder, any, you know, other type of upper abdominal procedures that were just not um, able to be attempted in the past. They can do those um, now more. So you have to remember that many times these patients are going to come in and they're going to be worried if their baby's going to be okay. If, if they have this surgery, is there going to be a problem? Are they going to harm the baby? So we have to be um, careful and we have to be understanding of the situation that they're in. So at this point in um, the discussion and in the lecture, um, I'm going to just leave with this comment for all of the Surge Tech students. Um, just remember that at any time, this any of these type of patients could be us or a family member. So we treat all patients the same, irrelevant of our beliefs. And we have to ensure that when patients come into us for surgery, we're treating them carefully and we're treating them with respect. Thank you very much. Have a good day.